2: We are here live from the Bloomberg Invest Conference at Bloomberg's New York City headquarters. Coverage of the Bloomberg Invest Conference on Bloomberg Radio is brought to you by SEI. This is the big week, the week when we're finally going to hear some of these details about President Trump's infrastructure spending plan and to break down exactly what we can expect and what uh, potential opportunities there are for private investors. Uh, Glenn Youngkin is here to make it all make sense for me anyway, President and Chief Operating Officer of the Carlisle Group, and he joins us here in our Bloomberg. Uh, Headquarters. Glenn, let's start with- Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining me. Uh, Let's start with the idea of this $200 billion of federal money and $800 billion of private money that comes in because these private investors are promised incentives. What are these incentives?
1: Yeah, I actually think um, the incentives are going to be more for the jurisdictions that take on new projects. So how's this really going to work? First, the government's incentives are going, to be, are going to be put in place so that cities and states could actually earn a bonus if they take on public-private partnerships for critical assets. So, for example, if you're the mayor of a city and you have an airport and you have big plans for that airport and you actually put it into a public-private partnership process and bring in private capital to fund the expansion of that airport and, oh, by the way, most likely receive a payment up front – Um, The government will, in fact, provide an incremental incentive on top of that for the city. The city then has the capital that they liberated from that airport. Plus incremental capital from okay. the government to invest in new things. All right,
2: back up. When you say they get this extra incentive, they get this extra bonus. That money's coming from somewhere. Where does that come yeah. from? Does that mean higher tolls? Does that mean higher taxes federally?
1: Well, well, first of all, the 200 billion was in the president's plan that they submitted two weeks ago, which was a 10-year, a 10-year, a, a budget frame plus a 10-year forecast, and it's over the 10-year period. The 200 billion, um, and they actually. Hope to liberate more than 800 billion. They hope to actually attract a billion, a trillion, I'm sorry. They hope to attract a trillion into this. And so, which I actually think they will, because the asset base that the private sector has a chance to invest in is already existing. Very interesting fact. Just in the airports alone in the United States today, which are up and running commercial entities. Right. They get landing fees, they have passenger traffic, they have uh, restaurants and shopping in them. There's, there's an estimate that that's already a half a trillion of value that exists in just airports in the United States today.
2: Okay, so I, I love the idea of liberating cash, by the way. that I, My mind is going yep. wild, but I, I'm trying to understand uh, this idea of attracting $1 trillion in investment capital. It seems like private equity firms in particular, which are desperate for opportunities in this overvalued market, uh, at least uh, in the eyes of some, I'm, I'm surprised that there haven't already been more investments made in infrastructure and if they're not are there structural reasons as to why not for example uh, whether it's certain interests or whether it's certain obstacles that are just physical you can't construct a new airport when there's one that needs to operate
1: right at least that's a great question and i think there's two primary um, factors to make sure we look at first outside of the united states this concept has flourished so in europe in canada and particularly in australia the concept of bringing uh, private investors into infrastructure and have them almost recapitalize that infrastructure in a partnership with the government has flourished for years and years and years. It hasn't happened here because there's been a hesitancy to actually take on what is something new because there's been this expectation that the government's just going to pay for it. Don't worry, we're just going to pay for it. Right. And the reality today is we can't afford to pay for it any longer. There are critical infrastructure needs that the government can pay for, but it can't pay for the $2 trillion gap that exists today in our infrastructure requirements. And so it is the need to actually uncover this new technique for this country. And It's not perfectly new because we've done a few already that, in fact, will will gain some momentum and actually begin to start filling that gap.
2: So Carlyle oversees about $162 billion of assets. How much money do you expect Carlyle to invest should this plan come to fruition in infrastructure? Well,
1: it's, it's, it's a very nice direct question, and so I'm going to dodge it a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I, I um, imagine that you would <laughs> but, find a way. <laughs> but we, we, in fact, we, in fact, have funds and are raising funds. And so in energy and infrastructure today, we manage across equity and debt capital about $28 billion. Infrastructure needs extend from energy infrastructure to airports to toll roads right. to telecom infrastructure. And so the depth of this market is big. It's big. And so what I think what we're going to end up seeing, however, is a few key critical projects out front that blaze a trail. Airports so in particular. Airports in particular, because they're commercial entities that are up and running. They're com- and, and as a result, people understand them. They've been done in other countries. Um, and that to me is a decision that a mayor can make and the FAA can make. And they don't really need government intervention from the from Washington to do this. And that's the great part about airports today.
2: This is a fascinating conversation. I could speak with you all morning because uh, it really highlights a lot of interesting uh, angles, such as if you do have airports that are successful at pairing partner private and public money, uh, then what does this lead to next? But unfortunately, we have to leave it there. Glenn Youngkin, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, President and chief operating officer at the Carlyle Group, its private equity firm uh, that oversees $162 billion in Washington, D.C. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Invest Conference at Bloomberg's New York City headquarters. Coverage of the Bloomberg Invest Conference on Bloomberg Radio is brought to you by SEI. And of course, no investing conference or conversation would be complete unless we addressed the big elephant in the room, which is passive investing and the shift that's been going on. Moody's put out a report earlier this year saying that passive investing will overtake active management by 2024 in the U.S. For more perspective on this, I want to bring in Christy Mitchum. She is chief executive officer of Wells Fargo Asset Management, which has $480 billion of assets under management and is based in San Francisco, which has much better weather than there is in New York City yet today. And yet here she is, and she joins us here uh, in New York. Christy, thank you so much. Um, You know, uh, we hear so much about this accelerating shift to passive management, particularly with respect to equities. Uh, Is now any different? I mean, it's time with such low volatility. Won't this just absolutely accelerate?
0: You know, I think today is different. And I think one of the things that investors may be missing that really sits below overall low volatility levels is a real C-shift in the marketplace. And that's a change in the pairwise correlation between stocks. You know, we saw that correlation actually hit a low in January of this year after hitting a high back in 2012.
2: Wait, wait hold on a sec. Let's just back up. In other yeah. words, the correlation between stocks, uh, all stocks moving in
0: tandem, broke down earlier That's this year. Correct. It reached the lowest point ever? It reached the lowest point since 2008 in the Lehman bankruptcy, so wow. a really big shift. Um, And one of the things that's really characterized the big market rally that we've seen since the global financial crisis has been strong correlations. That's changing, and that presents real opportunities for active managers. Let me just give you a playbook from from what we're seeing in terms of our own stable of managers. Since the beginning of the year, 74% of our active managers are outperforming their respective benchmarks. And just to put that in perspective, they're outperforming by a lot. On average, asset-weighted outperforming respective benchmarks by over 175 base. Points. And is that including fees or
2: not including fees? that is after fees that is after fees okay yeah. and this is the biggest outperformance in a while that
0: you've seen absolutely I mean 2013 to 2016 really difficult years for active managers the number of active managers outperforming in the large cap space in 2016 20% that's the lowest number since 1990 so if investors are looking for a place to put money, I think that place today is active managers. And active managers also perform better in a downturn. So it's a great way to pick up excess return today, but also put a little insurance cushion inside your portfolio.
2: Okay, so you said that 70% of Wells Fargo Asset Management's active fund managers, 74% have been, 74% have been a- outperforming uh, their prospective uh, benchmarks. Have they seen inflows? Have they seen flows follow that performance or is, is marketing still a really big issue?
0: I, I still think we're a little bit late to seeing, f- I mean, we're a little bit early to seeing flows. You know, we're, I think people are still really focusing on this sort of you know, um, phenomena in terms of a trend towards passive investing. And, and that's why I think this is really an important story and a potentially important inflection point for asset management.
2: So is there a particular equity market where you're seeing correlations break down even more than others?
0: Well, I think, you know, across the board, we're seeing correlations break down. But I think where it's particularly impactful is in the sectors where it's been difficult to outperform. And that is U.S. large large cap. And oh, by the way, that's a big part of the investor's portfolio in the U.S.
2: So um, just to sort of back up, the correlations were uh, tightly moving together just simply because of the central banks and the fact that the Federal Reserve was basically driving all of the risk on uh, sentiment. Now, however, it's unclear what's really driving it. And as we talk about with uh, Dave Wilson, our Bloomberg Sox editor and columnist uh, here uh, every day. You know, you have big losers and big winners. How long can we continue with this type of activity and this type of dispersion before something macro kind of gets in the way and drives us all, especially with all the noise that we're hearing on the geopolitical side.
0: Listen, I do think there is tons of noise on the geopolitical side. Obviously, if we just look to tomorrow, there's a lot going on. We've got Comey, we've got the ECB, we've (laughs) got UK elections. I mean, there's a ton to focus on. But at the end of the day, stock market valuations and performance comes down to, you know, how are corporate earnings performing? And we've really seen, you know, really strong growth. So we look at top line growth, we're looking at Numbers in the six to seven percent range. Um, bottom line growth, You know, similar numbers. So you know, really outstanding growth both in the top line and the bottom line compared to last year. And I think that's what's supporting the valuations that we see in the marketplace today. So
2: a couple of years ago, there was a lot of fear among investors about rising rates and about a big sell-off in markets. And at that time, liquid alternatives and other types of unconstrained funds were the rage people piled into these things saying, please protect me in a downturn. Not anymore. Are these things ever going to be popular again?
0: Oh, I think so. I mean, you know, I think everything has its space uh, in the marketplace and it has its time. And I think, you know, those products in particular did not perform well in a market that was really doing, um, you know, quite well. Um, so I think we'll continue to see people put rainy day strategies in their portfolio, portfolios and I think that's a good thing to do. So um, with
2: respect to Wells Fargo asset management, what area in asset management uh, do you see as having the biggest opportunity for potential expansion?
0: So I think the biggest opportunity is undeniably multi-asset class solutions. I think as investors, individual investors continue to get more sophisticated about what they want and what they need, we're going to see a real drive towards customization. You're not going to want the market portfolio, you're going to want a portfolio that that actually matches your specific needs, desires, and obviously liabilities. And and that's going to be a big shift. I think the, undeniably the biggest opportunity is multi-asset class solutions and personalized investment. So will a computer be giving me that? I, I think it's highly likely that a computer will be part of that solution, absolutely. And that's not a bad thing. Actually, you know, what, I think, you know, robo-advisory, right. and, you know, <laughs> as we call it, is actually highly enabling, right? It allows us to take the kind of insights and strategies that have typically been only accessible to the largest institutions of the world and put them in the hands of individual investors, and that's an incredibly important and valuable shift.
2: Do you think that there's any area of the market that's going to continue to shrink and will eventually become
0: obsolete with respect to active asset management. Well, listen, I think we're going to continue to face pressures in the large-cap uh, marketplace as it relates to active management. I think we do see opportunities, or at least in more readily available opportunities in less efficient spaces. So that's small-cap stocks, mid-cap stocks, international stocks, emerging markets. So, you know, I'm not saying it's we're not going to have to fight the good fight in large-cap. I think we are, and I think we'll be able to generate alpha more easily in other spaces, but I still think it has a real place in the portfolio.
2: Christy Mitchum, thank you so much for joining us. Truly thank a pleasure you. to speak with you. Christy Mitchum is Chief Executive Officer of Wells Fargo Asset Management uh, in San Francisco. It oversees $480 billion in assets and is on the forefront of uh, this transition, this changing uh, investment landscape that we have talked so much about. One of the things that is being talked about is the revolution that is going on in consumer lending, in particular, the way that people, uh, investors are mining big data to get a better sense of what the potential for defaults and delinquencies could be to get more of a sense of just where this is in uh, the mortgage market. In particular, I want to bring in Emmanuel Shereff. He is executive vice president and a portfolio manager at PIMCO, which is based in Newport Beach. Uh, Emmanuel, thank you so much for joining us. So, you know, we hear a lot about the ability for online lenders to mine big data and understand people's Facebook feeds and uh, whatever else, and credit scores, to get a an accurate sense of whether they will default. What do you look at? What do you think is the most important online data indicator that is a deciding factor for whether somebody will be, make good on their bills?
3: So, uh, thank you for having me. First of all, at Pimco, we have been doing machine learning and big data for a very long time in the mortgage and real estate space. Um, I've I've been heavily involved in that. And uh, we've built out a fairly significant infrastructure that allows us to gather information on local real estate markets, um, on all the mortgage performance, on consumer credit, on local demographics and economics, and and, and all of that. And we use that in order to build up our uh, mortgage lending models and our mortgage performance models. Um, With with kind of internet-related big data, uh, it's worth being a little bit skeptical of some of the claims that are are being uh, put out there. Um, whenever we analyze data, we spend a lot of time cleaning data, understanding the provenance uh, of of where it comes from, how it was collected, adjusting for potential biases and other related issues that may arise with the data in order to try and extract correct um, signals from it and adjust for whatever biases may exist. And, And so with a lot of online data, uh, the collection methods are a little bit uncertain and subject to change at any time. So, for example, uh, if you, th- there's a variety of vendors out there that have sprung up over the last few years selling you know, Twitter sentiment, location data, right. you know, Facebook feed information, and, and all of that. And the populations can change very rapidly. The methods of collection can change all the time. There's not a whole lot of history for most of these things. So it's difficult to calibrate what exactly all of this information means for future mortgage performance, especially for signals that have only been around post-crisis that you have never even observed. in in a high-stress situation.
2: So um, this is fascinating, the amount of time and attention uh, focusing on exactly where the data is from, how it's been collected, and its track record of potential biases. I'm wondering, do you have a a track record with respect to how accurate PIMCO's model is in predicting delinquencies uh, in the mortgage debt market?
3: Well, when you're working with long-term data that has existed for some time, it's uh, possible to back test it and to build a variety of models uh, surrounding it. With with bigger data, it's much more challenging to do that, and you have to kind of depend on whether or not you've um, correctly made those those adjustments. And whenever a high stress period occurs, such as it is now, you start seeing things potentially breaking down, or you're forced to extrapolate.
2: High stress period of time, like now. Now is a high stress period of time.
3: It's it's becoming a little bit more stressful. Please explain. Um. So. As I think you mentioned uh, some of the online lenders are seeing a little bit of increases in uh, yeah. defaults and delinquencies. Yes, so it's and not there have
2: been un- un- unexpected and unpleasant surprises in the prospers of the world and the lending clubs of the world. And there has been uh, a, a certain wave of uh, cynicism over some of these models, correct?
3: Exactly. So, so I think now they're seeing a little bit of um, maybe not stress in the world, but stress to their models that they have to make adjustments for.
2: But are you but- seeing stress to the underlying uh, U.S. mortgage market?
3: Uh, I, I, we're still very constructive on the mortgage market, on the housing market overall, but uh, do we do we want to talk more about big data and machine learning?
2: <laughs> All right. Well, I mean, with big data and machine learning, uh, what are the signs that you look for uh, to sort of lead up to a potential deterioration of the market?
3: Um, so we track um, a lot of information on the local demographics and economics. Uh, we track affordability ratios. Um, we track... Um, the consumer performance overall. We track credit scores and so on. But a lot of this is built into a variety of uh, nested models that rely on each other and build upon each other to build a complete picture of the consumer and projected mortgage performance. So in some cases, the signals interact in ways that with machine learning, you don't always entirely understand why a signal is showing what it's showing.
2: So how much work is done after you get, you know, you put something into your model and it spits out, you know, six and you look at the six and then what do you do with it? You know, I mean, do do people basically, do portfolio managers take the uh, input from the models and just go and directly put it out there? Or is there analysis and a discussion about uh, what to do with that?
3: The the models with with any model that we use, um, the model is just an additional tool in our toolbox that is, is, given to the portfolio manager and the trader. So the models allow us to synthesize a huge amount of information um, in order to uh, help us make a better investment decision more quickly. Um, but it's not making an investment decision by itself. And, and maybe that's part of the issue that some of the consumer lenders you mentioned are, are facing, um, that the models are effectively making decisions by themselves without additional human input or review.
2: Do you think that social media is a viable uh, tool to understand somebody's ability to pay their debts?
3: I don't know. I haven't spent a lot of time looking into social media effects on, on on debt repayment, and some of some of them would say that, but it might also be, um, might also be completely unpredictable depending on what it is that people post.
2: Fascinating. I honestly, I, this is this is an important area, and it's one that an increasing number of investors are turning to. Um, and just real quick, how many people do you have at Pimco who are focusing on maintaining these databases?
3: Uh, w- depending on the sector, we have. Um, I don't actually know how many we have in total at Pimco. We have uh, many dozens of people working on these things, and uh, depending on depending on the sector, there's more or fewer.
2: Emmanuel Sharaf, thank you so much for joining us. Emmanuel Sharaf is executive vice president and portfolio manager at Pimco, which is based in Newport Beach, and we are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Invest Conference at Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg's New York City headquarters. We had some breaking news this morning. Uh, President Donald Trump tweeted, I will be nominating Christopher A. Ray, a man of impeccable credentials to be the new director of the FBI details to follow. We are not going to wait for him to give us some details before getting some of our own from Larry Liebert, national security team editor for Bloomberg in Washington, D.C. Larry, what do we know about Christopher Ray, the nominee for uh, the new director of the
4: FBI? Well, he's quite well known. He's a white collar defense attorney now, but he served at the Justice Department uh, for a number of years, including uh, prosecuting the uh, uh, infamous Enron uh, financial scandal. Uh, The initial response. Uh, including from some critics uh, of President Trump, has been that he's a good, solid choice, although he didn't have specific experience as some previous FBI directors heading the agency. So, um, all in all, considered a respectable, solid choice, but uh, there'll be confirmation hearings. Well, he'll be asked a lot of tough questions, including whether um, he was promised independence uh, by President Trump or uh, and whether President Trump uh, asked him for loyalty as uh, yeah, the fired FBI director Comey uh, uh, apparently uh, alleges
2: yeah this is this is important the other thing that I find interesting is the timing of President Trump's announcement this comes a day before uh, fired FBI director James Comey is set to testify in front of Congress about his discussions with President Trump uh, what is the significance of this I mean is it just a coincidence has this been a In the works for a long time, or is this a move to perhaps um, pull attention away from the hearings and toward uh, the future?
4: Well, there's no pulling attention away from these (laughs) hearings, which are certainly going to be dramatic. But I think you're right. The president's message is we're turning the page. That's all history. We uh, have chosen a new. appropriate fbi chief uh that we're nominating let's get on with it right and that's certainly the best uh politically speaking the best message he could send uh you know there's been a lot of talk about whether he'll be able to resist tweeting all day long tomorrow while comey's testifying uh but uh, in terms of using his uh twitter handle this morning uh he sent an effective message uh, Uh, going into tomorrow's hearing.
2: Right. Um, Larry, and before we get to uh, getting a sense of what the big issues are tomorrow, I really want to touch on uh, Attorney General Sessions because there are reports that he offered to resign after getting some pressure from President Trump uh, based on his decision to recuse himself from the Russia inquiry. Uh, Do you think that this is realistic? The color that you're getting from people in Washington, D.C., do they really expect that Attorney General Sessions proposal might be accepted and is a realistic uh, possibility?
4: Well, the sense uh, our reporters, Chris Stroman and and others get, is that uh, President Trump tends to lash out at those around him when he feels they haven't come through. In this case, uh, he's never forgiven, uh, uh, reportedly, uh, Attorney General Sessions for uh, recusing himself. And uh, which led to a whole series of events, including naming uh, a former FBI chief as special prosecutor. And uh, with that kind of festering, um, that uh, Attorney General Sessions said, if you'd like me to resign, I will. But I think the sense was it was more a message to the president, if I don't have your faith, I'll go, uh, rather than uh, a resignation we should expect in the near future.
2: Okay. So people don't think it's realistic. They think it's more sort of a, uh, an ultimatum. Look, you have, you have, you have carte blanche here. Do you want me to go?
4: Right, exactly, and uh, of course, you never know. This uh, this president has proven, uh, if uh, if nothing else, that he's unpredictable. Uh, that he goes his own way, uh, yeah. and that he has been frustrated. He he attacked the Justice Department for the uh, revised uh, uh, travel ban that he signed right. uh, <laughs> in a in a tweet, and that's. Unprecedented. So uh, we're always ready for surprises. All
2: right, Larry, now to turn to this center stage event tomorrow. Uh, James Comey heading to uh, Capitol Hill. What are the main issues that he's going to be talking about? What are, what are the main things that people want to hear?
4: Well, they really want to hear... What he and Donald Trump discussed Did, as uh, has been Reported, did the president uh, Repeatedly ask him for loyalty uh, and uh, Which he Apparently sidestepped uh, Did the president Ask him, can't you let this go After uh, uh, General Flynn was fired As national security advisor uh, And did he feel uh, That that was uh, a clear Effort at interference uh, And the question is, will um, what we hear uh, from people uh, familiar uh, with, uh, with uh, Comey, who, who tends to speak his mind, is that he will uh, recount those discussions, but he'll leave it to others to decide whether it was obstruction of justice or uh, uh, otherwise uh, deeply inappropriate.
2: Larry, does it matter? Does it matter what he says? Because let's say he says, uh, you know, anything, everything but that it was obstruction of justice and that it's clear that uh, congressmen feel like it is, um, then what?
4: Well, that's always the question, because uh, practically speaking, you don't prosecute a president, uh, but uh, and impeachment is not on anybody's lips really at this point, uh, but it, uh, that would keep alive not only the investigation of Russian interference, but whether those close to the president were involved and whether there's any effort to suppress that information. Uh, so it's, it's a key moment, uh, and I should add that right now, Senate Intelligence Committee uh, is hearing from uh, Dan Coats, the Director of National Intelligence, and others at press them on their conversations uh, with uh, uh, with President Trump. And so um, it, there's quite a build-up to tomorrow's Comey uh, testimony. Larry, your head uh,
2: must be spinning because certainly mine <laughs> is. Larry Liebert, thank you so much for distilling all of the activities that are going on in Washington, D.C. right now, what we can expect, expect for uh, tomorrow. Larry Liebert is national security team editor for Bloomberg News, and he is uh, there In the heat of the action in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast.
1: You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
2: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz One. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.